God is infinitely wise. God, we might say, God alone is wise. There is no one like Him. And when we sing songs like we have this morning, our nature, when you sing, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. When you sing that, your, your natural man, I want to tell you, your natural man, my natural man, in the flesh, rises up and defends and says, No, I have the abilities. I have the intelligence. I have a desire. I have freedom. And... And it's just natural. And so if that happened to you as we were singing, don't, don't feel bad. That, it happens to me sometimes. But when the Spirit of God lives in you, it witnesses back immediately, are you freer than God? Are you stronger than God? Are you greater than God? Are you wiser than God? You see what I'm saying? To every fleshly response... Of I'm wise, I'm strong, I'm, 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 I'm gifted, I'm free. God's Spirit rises up and says, Is God not freer still? Is God not wiser still than you? Who are you, old man, to ask God, challenge God, demand from God that He give you freedom? He is the potter. We are but clay. And is he not free to do what he wills with the pots that he makes? That's Paul's answer to the flesh that rises up and defends itself. That's Paul's answer. You're a pot. You couldn't make yourself. God made you. Now, can he not do what he wills with his creation? And yet, we are overwhelmed with his goodness. There is no one, there is no one in all of eternity that today enjoys heaven or suffers hell unless they themselves wanted those things. We're going to see a little of that this morning. So I know that our flesh rises up. I know we have uh, unanswered questions, but let's allow God's word to shape and mold and fashion us after his image. We're in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. I know, we preached 4 last week. It's too good to leave. We'll be there again this week. And I want to kind of read through it with you, and then we'll we'll begin the message. Start in verse 3. Blessed be, praise be, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, In the heavenly places. Now I want to stop there as we read. That is the broad category. That is, that is, that is the, the prayer of praise. That is Paul's broad statement in this passage. That's it. It encompasses everything from 4 through 14 in one verse. Praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, all complete spiritual blessings in Christ In the heavenly places. From the heavenly places. Okay? So that's the broad statement. That's the banner. That's the, that's the Hebrew prayer of praise. Bless God, who is almighty. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 72. Bless God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the way they blessed. This is the way they praised. This is the way they prayed. Now, what we see in 4 through 14 is an expansion, an unfolding. It's like God, it's like Paul had it all contracted up here and his mind in in this prayer gets overwhelmed with God's goodness. And I, I imagine, I see the apostle His pen's moving freely and he gets to verse 3 and he can't see the parchment for the tears in his eyes. It's like, I can't pass this up. It's just too good. He's overwhelmed. And it's like everything's compacted and then it's a portfolio. He he flips it like that and it just goes, folds out. It's rapid fire. It's emotional. This is not some dry, heady passage where Paul says, let me teach you the seven points of spiritual blessings this morning. No, Paul's saying, praise God, 
who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He has blessed us in every way, in Christ, in the heavenly places. I can't pass that up. Here it comes. That's what this is. That's what this is. Far be it from us to turn this into academics. Into heady, disconnected, aloof, prideful, arrogant theology. Paul is speaking from his heart with great passion, praying. Now, you say it's a run-on sentence. 3 through 14 in the original language is one sentence. But isn't that the way we pray? Have you ever prayed long and fervently about something and you get and you get, and you just the whole prayer is one line? You never put a period, you never took a breath. It's just it's just flowing out of you. That that's what we're looking at. It's a prayer and so it just it's, it runs on. That's not a run-on sentence. It's masterful in its construction. But it feels awkward and long to us. 202 words without a period, without a semicolon, without any break, without any breath. You get the point. This is powerful. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me tell them what the spiritual blessings are. Accordingly. Even as for he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, first spiritual blessing, that we should be holy and blameless before him, first result of the first spiritual blessing. In love, he predestined, second spiritual blessing, us, he predestined us for adoption, second call, second Outflow of the second spiritual blessing. Adoption. There it is. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Ultimate purpose. Verse 6. To the praise of His glorious, magnificent grace. Ultimate reason. Ultimate reason for salvation, the praise of God's glorious grace. That's the ultimate reason for salvation. There is a secondary reason. You and I are caught up in that ultimate reason of God being glorified. Therefore, we receive from Him the blessings of heaven, ultimately salvation, eternal life, redemption, adoption. Okay? We are not the primary focus of salvation. We are not the primary focus of salvation. I say that again. We, as humans, sinful, lowly creatures, are not the focus of God's eternal work in salvation. He is the focus. He is self-consumed. He is jealous. He is lifted up into the heavens. And so we see the ultimate purpose. So that, his pra- so that the praise might resound to His glorious grace, with which the grace He has blessed us with in the Beloved. Be capitalized. Beloved. Why is it capitalized? Because He's not talking about the church. He's talking about Christ. Christ is the Beloved. Christ is the Elect One. Christ is the Son. Christ is the Inheritor. Christ is all in all. And we get what we get because we are in Him. You see it? He can't bless us unless He blesses us in the blessed one. The chosen one. If it weren't for Christ, there would be no blessing. There would only be curse. Why does why do other systems fail and Christianity succeed in explaining the origin and the end of mankind? Because other systems try to make it God versus man. In the Christian system, truly, God deals with God the Son, who then in we are in Him. God is loving God. Therefore, He can love us. Do you get it? In the Muslim system, 
It fails. Why? Because God deals directly with man and you can't earn God's love. You can't earn God's goodness. You can't earn acceptance. It's impossible. He's a judge in that system. And if he's judging us based on our works, our accounts, we will fail and we will be damned. But in the Christian system, God deals with God and deals with us in God. That's how we are blessed in him. Okay? so now we've read the passage. Now we want to preach. All God's spiritual blessings in Christ. All God's spiritual gifts in Christ. That's the title here. And it's going to be the title for a while. <clears throat> we'll just do one, two, three, four. Just keep going. We, point number one in your bulletin, we are elected by God before creation so that, so that purpose, we would be sanctified. That's verse 4. God freely chose us in Christ. God freely chose us in Christ. His freedom is complete. When He was in eternity past, prior to all creation, God exists. And He is perfectly complete. He is in need of nothing. He is in perfect communion. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Imperfect, loving community. Glorious, Shekinah, glory community. He needed nothing. He is complete. He is free. Okay? And so God the Father, at that point, when He's totally free, when He's in that loving community, when there's nothing else that has been done, He then freely decrees, wills, chooses, to save his people out of all of humanity. Okay? And that's the rub. That, that's, the, that, that's, that's the crux of the argument. That's why uh, guys like me get attacked and slandered and lied about throughout a community and all over the Internet. Because this is unexplainable. This is a truth that's meant to be confessed, believed, and accepted. It is not meant to be understood this side of glory, or maybe ever. It is what we call an antinomy. Big word, simple meaning. On the surface, it seems to contradict itself, these truths, that God is totally free and man is totally and absolutely responsible for everything he does or does not do. It on the surface seems to be butting heads. It can't be resolved. And they're right. It cannot be resolved. And neither should we be trying to resolve it. We should be confessing it as true. Believing it as true. Holding on to it as true. Ingesting it as true. Preaching it as true. We should be evangelizing this truth to the lost world. Not trying to rationalize and make it make sense. It cannot make sense in the human mind. You will drive yourself batty trying to understand the intricate details here. But that's not unlike other truths in the Bible. Aaron pointed out the Trinity. I like it when he steals my material. It lets me know I must be on the right track. <laughs> the Trinity, right? Raise your hand, please, if you can perfectly explain and you perfectly grasp the concept and the truth that God Almighty is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. Right? And He is three persons. He's one essence, explained, understood, revealed in three ways. You got that one, right? I'll give you the floor. We don't have any heretics here today. You know you can't explain it. You accept it. You confess it because the Bible teaches it. I'll give you another one. Maybe you're not convinced that these things are all over the Bible. God was in the state of perfect communion and there was nothing else. And out of that nothingness, God created all things. You got that one, right? <laughs> There was no matter. 
Go talk to your physics professor about that one. Oh, yes, sir, but I understand that you believe in the, 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 the universal mass which has existed from all of eternity, but the reality is there was no universal mass existed from all eternity. There was a God who existed from all eternity, and then out of nothing, he created everything, ex nihilo. They will laugh you out of the physics department. They'll say, it is impossible. It cannot happen. It's an antinomy. It seems to contradict something out of nothing. I'd like to do it with my bank account. Something out of nothing. It doesn't work again. I'm not God. I can't do it. Right? I confess it. I believe it because the Bible teaches it and it's true. Let me give you another one. <clears throat> For the sake of redundancy. So you know. So you cannot get around this fact. That there are things on the surface which don't seem to make sense to us. Yet they are absolutely true. Jesus Christ has existed from all eternity as God the Son, God the Word. We confessed Him this morning. In His existence, He is 100% God. There is no lack in Him, nothing needed to Him. He is God. And yet, on a cold night in Bethlehem, after nine months of being carried in a human fleshly body, He was born into this world 100% and completely human. Big word, hypostatic union. What does it mean? God, man, 100%. Ill both sides together. Explain it. You can't. You confess it. It's true. You believe it. It's true. God says it. It's true. I don't have to rationalize it. When someone comes and attacks those truths, we don't try to rationalize with them. I hope you don't. We're presuppositionalists. We stand on the firm ground of God's Word and say, all else fails. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter. God said it. It's true. Don't ever step off of that. Don't ever go off into the dark, deep, murky water of, well, we'll take your side of the argument. No. No. They don't have an argument. Stand on the Word of God and say, this is truth. Explain it. I don't have to. God said it. It's true. That's the way we answer this question. It's not arrogant. They will charge you with arrogance. What is arrogant is to believe you can out-rationalize the living God. That's arrogant. When the living God says He is a trinity, and they say, well, it must be explained, and I have this theorem, no. No. That's pride. That's arrogant. Saying God is God, and I'm not, is not arrogant. That's humility. That's biblical humility. Do you get it? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm not going to talk about the human side of it because that's not in our text. I'd be putting something there that's not there, okay? I'm going to only talk about God and what he did in his freedom from before the foundation of the world. That's it. I'm taking my cue from what I believe to be one of the greatest pulpiteers and preachers to ever walk the earth, Charles Spurgeon. When asked about this question of why he didn't preach, on human responsibility, after a sermon, he said, if the text had called for it, I would have preached it. If you attend my church often enough, when I get to a text which teaches human responsibility, I teach human responsibility and not election. But when I'm in a passage that teaches election, I teach election and never mention human responsibility. Why? Because we're bound by the Word of God. We're holding both things as true. We're keeping the tension where it belongs. And so we're praising God this morning. That's what we're doing. We're talking about God, His freedom, His ability, His power, not us. And so let's do it. We were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. God freely chose us in Christ. He freely chose us because there was nothing else there. He's free. That's, there's nothing that binds Him. There's no laws of physics. There's no laws of human relationship. It's just God. That's it. God, secondly, freely chose us in Christ before creation. Election. Chose. I said it last week. I'm saying it again. I'm going to be less sarcastic this time. The word here translated for you, chose. Last week I told you, what does it mean? You listen well. Chose. That's, that's what it means. Specifically in the dictionary, it says to select a small number out of a larger number. The larger number is all of humanity, which is uncreated, has never done an act, 
is not the cause of the selection. God is the cause of the selection. He chooses. And election is not just some small doctrine in one or two passages. There are different kinds of elections. First of all, God has elect angels. They're still in the heavenly places where they belong. Demons are fallen angels which were not elect. And they are now out of their proper domain. No one argues about that. No one. Find him. No one who is an orthodox Christian even debates that. They're not offended by that. God didn't give the angels a choice. I don't don't care. I'm not an angel. Okay. But it's true. And he didn't violate anybody. All right. So that's one election. A second election we see in the scriptures is the election of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Jesus Christ is chosen from before the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 1 tells us, He was foreknown by the Father. Pro gnosko. The word pro meaning before, gnosko, knowledge. And when we talk about foreknowledge, just to take that one off the table, Okay, because I know some of you who are opposed to this doctrine would say, yes, Carlton, he chose, but he chose based on seeing me choose him, and then he chose me at the same time because God's eternal. It doesn't work that way. Well, how do you know? Because Romans 8 says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorifies. Okay? He said, I don't get it. First Peter says, same word, he foreknew Christ. So to believe that this is simple foreknowledge over here as it pertains to as it pertains to humans. Simple foreknowledge. God looked down through the halls of time and he saw that I would love him and choose him and so he chose me. That's simple foreknowledge. Comes from a man named William of Ockham. It had never existed before he made it up. Because he was trying to resolve the tension. And he needed to just confess the truth. The problem is William didn't look at First Peter, I don't think, very well. Because if he just simply knew what we would do and chose us, then what does that say about what he knows about his own being, Jesus Christ? He just knew him? Just some random thing? Well, I looked down through time and I saw that Jesus Christ would be perfect and die on a cross and, and he would raise from the dead. And so I love him and I chose him. No, we would be angry at some statement like that. But it's the same word. It has the same meaning. When you look back in the Old Testament to find out what the word knowledge is, look carefully, children. Look carefully with your parents. Adam knew his wife and conceived a son. Intimate knowledge is in, 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 in sight when we're talking about knowledge in the Bible, foreknowledge. It's not simple. It's not disconnected. It's not God looking through time. It's God loving. It's God choosing. It's God working. It's intimate. He's involved in it. So we, we don't have the option of saying, well, he elected because he foreknew. So if he foreknew, it was because he was intimately involved with us and he knew us. And so we see here that the election is of the angels, the election is of Christ, the election is of Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, excuse me, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Kind of shoots a hole in the theory of God working off of simple foreknowledge. He didn't look at Israel and say, oh, they're a mass of people. They're the strongest nation on all the earth. I want them on my team. God said, I will take this man, Abram of the Chaldees. An idol worshiper, sinner, who does not know me, but I know him. And out of him... And out of his wife's womb and out of his seed, I will make a great nation and they will be my people. God elects Israel for a purpose. And that purpose is summed up in Jesus Christ. The reason he elected Israel was not Israel. It was not because they were strongest. It was not because they were biggest. It was because God wanted to show his great 
and unbelievable purpose, according to His will, chose Israel to bring Christ to the world. That was the purpose. They served their purpose. They did what God chose them to do. None of those types of election have anything to do with salvation. Therefore, hardly anybody argues about them. But then there is another type of election, which is made abundantly clear in the New Testament. It is everywhere in the New Testament. And that is the election of some to salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, the chapter we are in, details it. From a Trinitarian perspective, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working in perfect community to choose some for salvation. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through the end of the chapter, give us this beautiful picture of what God's doing in election. Romans chapter 9 becomes very blatant about election. These are some of the chapters, not all of them. As a matter of fact, it is the favorite way for Paul to refer to Christians as the elect. He uses it as a title of endearment. It's like you saying, that's my boy. Paul said, those are the elect. Right? So it was on the street kind of language in Paul's day. Election, though, I want to say clearly six things about election while we're on verse 4 here. and We're explaining that he chose us. First of all, election is sovereign It is the sovereign and eternal decree of God. Okay? It's all about God. God chose. Election is sovereign. Secondly, the presupposition, the the thing which we know to be true, absolutely, is that God's eternal decree of election is that the human race is fallen And yet God has a sovereign, free plan to lavish His grace on the believers. It's not based on human works. It's not based on simple foreknowledge. It's based on His freedom and His sovereignty. That's the second thing about election. The third thing is election is election in Christ. Therefore, we could never be elect outside of Christ. If Christ isn't in the picture, there is no election. It's impossible. Fourth, election involves both the elect's salvation and the means by which they will be saved. Here's here's another point that I would like to stress with you. We're going to have a lot of teaching on election and sovereignty in chapter 1. And one temptation of those who have not really really submitted to this doctrine, one temptation is for them to say, well, if God's going to save who he's going to save, I'll do nothing. But that's rebellion, and that is sin. God has not only chosen those he will save, but he has chosen the messengers that will tell them the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, by the word of Christ. So how will they be saved, Paul says, unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless they are sent? As the Old Testament says, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel of peace. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How how will they be saved if no one tells them? Do you get it? He's stressing after talking about election, he sees that there will be a group of people in rebellion say, well, then I'll do nothing. And he says, that's not an option. You must go preach the gospel. That's how they're saved. Well, I'm not going to pray for anybody then. Why should I pray for them? If God's going to save them, He's going to save them. Because God, before the foundation of the world, laid down the plan, we're going to talk about it in a minute, of how He would save. And prayer is included in that. Your prayer is included in that. I've been praying for for people that are not Christians, some of them for years. I have been preaching the gospel to some people who are not Christians, and I've been doing it for years. And I will not stop. Why? Because I believe that they're is a great God in heaven who can have mercy on them if He so wills and has has shown it over and over to be true. Now, now we talk about this, and I know that some of you are offended, and you say, well, I'm not going to pray for anybody. God will just save who He wants. Let me answer that for you. You don't believe in the election this morning. Let's take your side of it. How are you going to pray? For them to be saved, I mean. What are you going to say to God? 
They're totally free. God can't choose them. They just got to believe. What are you, how are you going to pray for them? Uh, God, if you would be so kind, um, what are you going to ask him to do? They're free. If he does anything, according to your definition, they're not free anymore. God sends someone to speak to them. They're not free anymore. Outside agency has started working on them now. God is the puppet master, as you like to say. He's offended their will. Oh, God caused their heart to long for you. No, 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 no. Hold up. No, they're free. Their heart has to be left alone. You can't pray for their heart. You can't pray God works on their heart. Oh, God, could they just read your word? No, uh uh-uh. No. Don't ask that. You can't. If you do, you will violate them. They don't want to read God's word. If they do read it, they read it critically. Don't ask God to do anything. Don't ask God to change them. Don't. Well, I want to ask God. I know because you know election is true. And you know God is sovereign. And you know God has the prior work on them if they're going to believe. You know it. I know it. When we kneel down, J.I. Packer says, when we kneel down on the knees of prayer, we are all, every one of us, all of us, Believe in the sovereign, free grace of God. Because you as a mother bow down and pray for your lost, wicked son. Oh God, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. Well, what if, I, what if, what if, what if that involves opening their eyes? What if that involves giving them sight? What if that involves giving them ears to hear? What if that involves taking their heart of stone and making it flesh? You want me to do all those things? If I do those things, then I'm acting on them. They haven't asked me to do anything. If I do those things, I'm affecting their freedom. But God, I want them to be saved. Okay, then I'll do those things. And then they're saved. In other words, far from being a demotivator for prayer, it's the only motivation we have for prayer. Why would you? Let me tell you how you should pray if you don't believe God is sovereign. Go pray to the person who's lost. Bow down to them and say, oh, please, please believe. I mean, this is true. You've got to believe. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to die and go to hell. Beg and plead them. Go ahead. Do it. Meanwhile, I will bow down before a sovereign God and say, oh, God, save them. Oh, God, change their heart. Oh, God, give me words. Give me, give me your word. Bring it to my mind. Let me be an influence. Let my actions be a witness, a light. Oh, God, please, please move on their heart. You pray to them, I'll pray to God. I trust God more than I trust man. Join me. I'm begging you, join me to pray for lost people. Share the gospel with lost people. Be a God-centered Christian, not a human-centered Christian. Election is for salvation and the means of salvation. Fifthly, election is individual, personal, specific, and particular. Notice in our passage, I know you thought I forgot it. I've been doing some reasoning with you from the Scriptures. Let me show you this. Verse 4, even as he chose who? Us. Personal pronoun. In him before the foundation of the world that we... Personal pronoun. Now, if he was talking about groups of people, he wouldn't say us and we. First of all, because he's writing to Gentiles and he himself is a Jew. He's not an us in that term with them. He's not a we in that term with them. They would be a group and he would be a group. But Paul includes himself in this. He chose us. Who? Jews and Gentiles. All believers. The believers, the subset of humans who were all lost and God chose some for salvation. That's who he's talking about. So it's not ever, ever corporate only. It's corporate and individual. You can't have a body of believers without individual believers. Election is personal. Election is specific. Election is particular. Election is for human beings, singular, one, to be saved at a time. Everyone standing on their own uh, two feet, so we should say. You can't be saved in groups. You're saved as individuals. 
Finally, the ultimate goal of election is the glory and praise of God in verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. That's the purpose. So some might charge you steal and rob man's freedom. And I would say, I gladly rob my freedom to glorify the free God. You violate the will of man with your teaching. Oh, I gladly violate man's will because I serve a God whose will cannot be violated. His eternal decree cannot be violated. That's my answer. God's election. God's purpose in choosing us in Christ is that we would be sanctified in his sight. Look what it says in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, that we should be. Notice that. Focus in on that little word, that. The purpose is that we should be holy and blameless in his eyes, as the NIV says. Before his eyes, I think is the way it says. Before him. God has chosen us to be holy and blameless before him in love. Love, for a lot of reasons, which if I get into, we'll be here till 2 o'clock. In love goes with the prior statement of holy and blameless, not with in love he predestined us. There's a ton of grammatical reasons you would nod off on if I started teaching them. But they're there, and if you want to talk about it, I'd love to. This is holy and blameless community that is known and characterized by love. That's what he elected us to, is a community of holiness and blamelessness that is known for love, that is characterized overall by love. And this is something that will be true in eternity. It is true in heaven, and it should be being progressively lived out in our lives. If the ultimate goal is holiness and blamelessness, be holy as I am holy. If that's the ultimate goal, God's saying, you will start now. You may, you will never, you will never be holy and blameless and perfectly in love in this life, but you will start being holy and blameless, progressively living it out. It is a truth. I told my home group last week, I'm going to tell all of you this. I love my wife. I love Amy. And that's written down. It's covenanted. It's put on a piece of paper. It's standing in a frame in my home. The vows which I gave to her and she gave to me. It is, it is true. Do you understand that? It is declared. It is true. All right? That is election. In a not perfect way, but that is election. I chose her out of all the women of the world and loved her. Lavished my love on her. I don't know if it was a gracious gift or not. Just let her tell you. But that's, that's the truth, okay? And let me tell you what this is. When she's headed out the door to go into this world filled with grubby and grimy men who have evil intentions, I grab her at the door by the arm and pull her close and say, I love you. You're mine. There's no one like you. Be holy today. Be mine today. Be pure today. And then she heads off. That's what God just did in this verse. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That, grab the arm, pull them close. They will be holy and blameless in love. It's God's intimate way to talk to us about how our life should look. You should leave this message not motivated to live in sin, but thinking, I have a God who freely of himself chose me to be his own, and he chose me to be holy and blameless. So when temptation rises, when lust rises, when the, the evil thoughts of slander rise, remember, he's got you by the arm, and he's saying, you're holy, you're blameless, you're to live in love to me and to others. This is the covenant I've made. This is the covenant I'm bringing into reality from eternity. This is it. Remember that. It's a challenge to live pure before God. What we read at the end, the purpose is that we will be, but that we will begin now. That we will begin now. There's no motivation to sinfulness in the doctrine of election. Second point here in this passage is we were predestined by God after election so that we would be adopted as sons. Election happens, and then predestination. Why do I say that? Because this word occurs four times, predestination, in Scripture. 
in relation to salvation and is always translated. <clears throat> it's always this predestination is always a translation of a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word. OK, the first part of the word is pro. Remember what I said that was before, right beforehand. The second part of the word is harizo, harizo. What does that mean? Bound, bound, marked out, laid out, beforehand laying out how we will be saved. So God chose us. He said, these are mine. And then he predestined us. He laid out the plan by which we would be saved. Every specific point of that plan is laid out. It's all laid out for us. We see it in other places in the scripture. I just, I just challenge you to look up these verses. Acts 4.28. I, I, I challenge you to do this because I don't want you to just think this is in one place here in the scriptures. One comes to my mind in 1 Corinthians uh uh, two, First Corinthians two, verse seven. I'll read it. <clears throat> First Corinthians two seven. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed beforehand, before the ages, for our glory. We declare a plan of salvation, which God decreed before the foundation of the world, for our glory. What a beautiful passage! That's the word there. Before, that's it. If we look in Acts chapter uh, 4, we see another passage, Acts 4.28, where, Paul, where uh, uh, there's, there is uh, preaching that has gone on. And look what it says in the middle of the sermon. To do, God laid down for his servant Jesus that he would be anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All that happened is Jesus God planned beforehand. He laid that plan out. He marked it out. He bound it up. I suggest that the notion of laying a blueprint is in mind here. And certainly the notion of laying out a boundary, a distance from most people's perception of the word predestination is here. Predestination includes the blueprint, the how-tos, the, the step-by-step working out of election. You can also look it up in Acts 17:26, Acts 11:29, Luke 22:22, 22, where the Lord says that His, where Jesus Christ says His pathway on the earth was preordained, predestined by God the Father. Every act He took was predestined. God predestined us to be adopted as sons. In He He chose us to be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. That's where we're at. Adoption. God predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Again, everything we receive is through Jesus Christ. God predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And it's all according to the good pleasure of His will. God loves to pour out blessings on His children. He is glad. He is happy to give us all things in Christ. That's what this verse teaches us. We see it here. So, we have the doctrine of election. We have the doctrine of predestination, which is the plan, the blueprint. And it begins, the blueprint begins with adoption. Adopting us as sons in Christ. Okay? And we're not going to get to verse 6. I want to shift gears. Let's change on the fly. And end this thing. You say, Carlton, we spent all morning defining two words. One of them really well. One of them kind of fast. What does this matter? I got a marriage that's failing. I got a child who's dying. I've got cancer. What does it matter that he elected me? What does it matter that you're talking about God's sovereignty and all this? I need practical. I need right where I live. I need that kind of teaching. I got to go face an awful boss tomorrow. I got to go deal with an awful situation tomorrow. My wife hates me. K 
cannot stand to look at me. We have not been together as husband and wife for months. And you're talking to me about some plan God laid down in eternity past. What does that matter? It matters everything. And I don't say that lightly. It matters everything. Because you face a real enemy tomorrow. And today. And your enemy, like a lion, seeking to devour your faith, to cause you not to trust God, is going to bring that up. And he'll say, oh yeah, God loves you, doesn't he? God loves you. That's why you got cancer, because he loves you. Isn't he a good God? Isn't he a good God? Yeah, God loves you. Boy, he just lavishes blessings on you. You're his child. Aren't you comforted that your wife has left you and you are abandoned and you are alone and you are left that way with no hope? Oh, aren't you so happy as his child? Isn't he a good daddy? That's what your enemy's saying. And your condition is true. It's true. I mean, these are real realities. Well, then I answer to my enemy. I answer to him, and I answer to him not about how I chose God. I answer to him about how God chose me. And I answer to him like this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When the enemy comes and says, Your life is in shambles, you have no hope, you say, Who? Who can witness against me? I'm the Son of God through Jesus Christ. I have Life in Him, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Oh yeah, He's going to give you all things. You're going to go bankrupt. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You're a pornography-looking, lustful, sinful human being. What hope do you have? My hope is Jesus Christ. My hope is that before the foundation of the world, God chose me. God loved me. That's my only hope. That's my only hope. I can't rise up from my temptation and say, I'm going to beat it next time. I can't beat it. My only hope is Him. My only plea is Him. That's why it matters. That's why it matters. If, you're, if your life is in shambles, your marriage is in a ditch, your only hope, your only hope is this doctrine, is that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Because if it's left to you and it's left to me, we will fail. We will fail miserably. Well, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So when He rises up and tells you about your sin, you tell Him about your election. You tell Him about your predestination. You tell Him about God's adoption. You tell Him about predestination. You tell Him these things. You say them out loud. You preach the gospel. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh, you may thunder against me with my sin, but He prays for me in words no one can understand before His Father. He saved me. He chose me. He is all in all. Now it gets good. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, those things can't separate us from the love of God. No, in all these things... We are conquerors through Him who loved us. Not the one we loved, the one who loved us. The one He chose us. The one who predestined us to adoption as His children. He loved us and we're conquerors through Him. For I am confident that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, Anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, when the charge comes before you, your answer must be Ephesians 1, 
four, five. When the charge comes against you in the morning for your sin, you can't run to some legalistic stronghold. You run to the one who loved you and who did it all for you. When you have no hope and your future looks bleak, you have to lift your eyes to the heavenly places and see that every good spiritual gift is yours in Christ Jesus. That is why we teach this doctrine. Some of you this week said, I'm sure glad you didn't skip this passage. A lot of people I see, they skip this passage. Why would I skip it? Why would I skip it? You're going to suffer. Some of you are suffering. Your spouse has died. You have cancer. You've gotten divorced. You you think life has no purpose and meaning. Why would I skip God's love letter to us? Why? Oh, I would say this. Why would I preach anything else? Why would I give you milk toast when there's meat? He is... God. He loved us. He chose us. He laid out the blueprint of how we would be saved. We are His children. The sheep of His pasture. We are in His hand. So who there? Who can separate us from His hand? Who can take us from our God? The answer? No created thing. Not you and not anything else. No created thing. We are His. Because He loved us. Because He chose us. It is ultimately security which we learn. We're in His hand. We're there by His good pleasure. And He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Let's pray. Father. Oh, the depths and the height and the width of your love which you have given.